0: If you liked hearing Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson provide secrets on negotiating for total compensation, dealing with microaggressions, or simply being able to just be your authentic self, then welcome to season two of Secrets. Are you one of the only on your job? Do you wonder why the same type of people continue getting promotions? Have you dreamed of getting to the top, but don't know how? Welcome to Secrets season two, a podcast devoted to showcasing dilemmas faced by underrepresented employees In their quest to climb the career ladder. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have experienced the corporate grind for more than 20 years. Now they want to share their adventures, pitfalls, and C-suite secrets that they've learned along the way. So let's fill up those cups and get started. Here are your hosts.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secrets.
2: Ricky, how you doing today, my brother? Man, I am pretty good. You know, I'm sitting back here just reflecting a little bit on the first part of that conversation that we had with Lane Brown. Yes. Now, we knew we knew what we were getting when we asked her to be on the show. But I don't think we actually knew.
1: Well, we didn't know. We weren't (laughs) expecting all of that. I can tell you that much. Exactly.
2: I mean, not at all. Two and a half hours of talking to her, and that was the two and a half hours that was recorded, right? Because we really had another two hours. Yeah, you know, before that, that we have. But I think we really witnessed a part of history that i don't know if we'll ever be able to duplicate no i mean that was like a walking history book man and it was like we were just both sitting there with our mouths wide open she not only talked to us about what influenced her to be a part of the black panther party but we got like a first-hand account for what times were like during that period in time right i mean she we tease people about name dropping and everything But, man, she was doing some real name dropping. She was. She was. I was like, like, wow. Wow. Real stuff. Real Real stuff. stuff, You know? But, I mean, I walked away from that conversation. I've really been just thinking about, like, her fight for justice and equality is alive and well.
1: No doubt, 50 years later. And, you know, just reflecting back on that episode for me, you know, Elaine's piece about the Black Lives Matter movement really (laughs) stuck out for me. right? (laughs) Right. Right. It was like. Okay, this is a very interesting and fresh perspective. And, you know, you and I talk about all the time about people having to have a plan, right? Yep. Whether it's managing your career, whether it's managing your exit from that job, whether it's managing your brand, you got to have a plan. And Elaine, she was straight up. She was like, hey, the organizations back in the civil rights era had some plans. Right. They knew what they were going after. They had a clearly articulated mission that they were fighting for. And she thinks that's kind of lacking right now, right? But those organizations, because they had that mission, we saw some monumental things happen back in the day, right? The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the War on Poverty. just all that stuff that just happened because they had a plan.
2: Yeah, I mean, just to sit there and be able to recite issue after issue to be able to bring it back to whatever it was that we were talking about. I mean, it was like, you weren't going to trip her up.
1: Not at all. (laughs) You weren't going to trip
2: her up. Right. But those are all great points that I think about in terms of immobilizing around missions or, you know, a cause and whatnot. And it just kind of reminds me of back growing up in uh, LA and literally being a part of the uprising in LA after the Rodney King beaten by the police. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I know, People refer to stuff like that as riots and everything else, you know, but it really was an uprising because that's what was caught on camera. Right. Let me tell you about all the stuff that wasn't caught on camera. Leading up to that moment. Right. Right. I mean, at that point, I think I'm maybe 15, 16. We're getting pulled over, all of those types of things, and you're Mm -hmm. just getting harassed, right? So although during the L.A. uprising that I was a part of, we expressed our displeasure for the corrupt police system, our outrage for the not guilty verdict by any of the police. I mean, like any of them. I mean, we saw like an ass whooping that just kept going. Just kept going. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody, no one deserved to get beat. I like that, right? So not guilty verdicts. But the one thing that just comes back to me is we weren't unified and organized with our approach on how to create sustainable change. Like, the Black Panther Party and Elaine spoke to in detail. Yeah. Like we were out there. You're out there. And we were just kind of running wild a little bit. Right. You know, like we were trying to be heard, but we didn't really have any leaders that we were kind of following. It was, we were just out, everyone. Just out there. Everyone. And, 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 but when you think about it, we fell prey to what they wanted us to be as disorganized. Yeah. That's right. there's there's no doubt about it and
1: as we talk often there are a lot of structural issues that impede the advancement of underrepresented employees in america and those that we just talked about that uprising with the rodney king and all of those things just point to some of the structural stuff that we're always trying to talk about as secrets because it's not just about you doing the right thing there's a system here that's kind of holding you back as well
2: yeah and it's like again we keep talking about being on point with your messaging, whether that be your value proposition, whether that be if your goal is to influence underrepresented employees in terms of the number mm-hmm. you know in leadership positions. Right. Versus just being loud and having a having a point. That's right. That's <laughs> you know? right. Like showing sure like, out. Show your ass at work. Exactly. Like what is the the key performance indicator. Yeah, Do you know what? What is it that we're actually fighting for?
1: Yeah, no doubt. In part two of our conversation with Elaine, we'll hear about how Elaine's passion to reduce recidivism and provide jobs to formerly incarcerated people led her to create her nonprofit, Oakland and the World Enterprises. Elaine will also talk about the role of women in the Black Panther Party and the Civil Rights Movement, and she'll close out our conversation discussing one of our favorite topics this month: white vigil. And so, as we close out Women's History Month, enjoy part two of our conversation with Elaine Brown. Buckle up. We wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your nonprofit, the Oakland and World Enterprises. One second. Tell us what that's all about.
3: So, Oakland and the World Enterprises is a nonprofit I formed because there is a county supervisor here in Alameda County uh, named uh, Keith Carson who comes out of the Ron Delos universe. Anyway, Keith uh, heard me speak somewhere, I think it was at an event that he had, talking about, you know, people coming out of prison and so forth and so on. And he he asked to meet with me and said, what do you think, how do you think we could reduce recidivism among black men, you know, come out about 10 minutes later, they're back in the joint. So I said, well, there's a reason they go back because they don't have any money. It's not very complicated. If You give me $200, I've been in a joint for 10 years, and I used to sell dope on that corner, but there's some youngsters there that look at me like, I know you don't think you're coming back on this corner. This is not your corner anymore. You lost that corner in the first six months, right? So, and your folks are gone and nobody cares. And your family don't want to see you because you don't have any money either. So you're out there on your own and they give you in the state of California, $200. Now in the state of Georgia is like $50. And then they're going to take off $50 if you don't have any clothes. Like maybe in 10 years, you haven't saved, you don't have your suit, you know, whatever. So $50 dollars not even give you something to wear to walk out the door. So now you got $150 to $200. What do you think you're going to do as a black man? Well, I'm thinking weed, woman, place to stay. You know what I'm yep. saying? You're going to blow yeah. that $200 that first night. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just be real. And that would be a normal thing to do. You know what I'm saying? It wouldn't even be crazy. And $200 here in the Bay Area is almost worthless. That's nothing.
0: <laughs> yeah, It's
3: certainly not going to pay any rent. So then you want to live in somebody's house and then you've claimed you have a job. That's how you got out. Maybe you got, or maybe you got out because you just did all your time. But at some point, you don't have any money. You're the same person that went in. You still don't have a high school diploma. You still don't have it. And you're not going You're barred from getting work and you're barred from getting an apartment, renting an apartment. Even if you had the money, even if you, you can't get these things. So what do you do? Well, you might go back to what you know, trying to sell a little weed trying to go over here, hustling, knocking somebody in the head, stealing out of a car and doing it stupidly. Because as I tell a lot of my brothers who went down on robberies and stuff, I said, you know what? You need to go to the Wells Fargo School of how to steal and get away with it. Because you don't know, it. <laughs> you, don't know how to steal. you don't know how to steal. Wells Fargo knows how to steal. This is not for you. Crime is not for you because you're not good at it. You know why I know that? Because you've been in the joint. See, a lot of people, have been stealing for a long time, they just didn't go to prison, right? That's right. <laughs> we've seen one of them.
2: <laughs> we've seen
3: we've seen one you of them. You mean the one more. that became the president? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Becomes the president of the United States. Yep. Can't even look at his taxes. You don't get how big boys roll. See, you stealing a chicken from Massa, see. And that all depends on how Massa feels that day as to whether or not you're going down on that. Or like this case, I just bring this in, and you've had Henderson. A black woman here in in the Bay Area, in in Emeryville, right next to Oakland, goes into a Home Depot. They claim she stole something. The short of it is she walked out and said, I'm not going to be checked like that. And they call the police. Police catch up with her. She's walking down the street. They want her to stop. She doesn't stop. They jump out with AR-15s and blow her away. That's the end of that story. So what did you die for? Home Depot? Are you serious? What could you steal from Home Depot that would be worth your life? Why would they kill you for that? All of that. But anyway, then they said, well, you know, she resisted arrest. So it goes on and on. But the point is, so when Keith talked to me and I said, well, the only thing you can do is get them some money. you got to get some jobs walking out the door. And so you could get some of these big corporations in the Bay Area. And there are a lot, especially here in Alameda County that you do business with. That you can tell them, look, I want you to give me a pilot program. Give me five jobs. Now, suppose you get 10 jobs from five corporations. That's 50 jobs and a pilot program. That's not going to be difficult. Go to Wells Fargo. They're based here. Go to Safeway stores. Go to Clorox. Go to these corporations and say, give me a program and I'll have them trained through the county services and I'll have them trained for that job. I said, the only other way they're going to have any money is to have their own businesses. He said, well, could you develop that program? I said, no problem. What a joke that was. But anyway... I thought it would be no problem because I'm one of those people. If it can be done, I know I'm the one that can get it done. Now, if it can't be done, that's another story. And what I don't know, I will find people that know it. So I don't have to know anything. I just have to know what needs to be known, right? We're not gonna be lawyers, doctors, architects, construction people, or flight captains or what. We're not gonna be all that because that stuff requires time in. If nothing else, everybody could be it, but you're not be all of it, right? And even if you were, you wouldn't have enough hands to handle all of that. So you've got to learn how to coordinate, organize, oversee, whatever. So I thought, no problem. I can start a business. What is that about? So when I thought, I wonder how, where am I going to put this business? What business is it going to be? And I outlined five arbitrary businesses. And one of them was an urban farm. Well, I didn't know that couldn't make money. That was a bad one. <laughs> a fitness center a restaurant, a uh, grocery store, and uh, some kind of tech center. So those are my five main, I just, it was arbitrary, believe me. And I said, well, what are we going to do? So I said, I need to have a property to build something on. This is just, I'm telling you, this is not based on anything. Mm-hmm. So then I looked around and I said, oh, I need to form a nonprofit. Now, this is the first time I'm telling this little secret It doesn't have to be a secret, but it is a little secret. When we were in the Black Panther Party, Huey had the idea that we could make our own money by having our own uh, live shows. Like instead of having somebody do a show for us and we get a percentage out of it, because like Ike and Tina Turner, somebody would come to town and we would, or we would bring them into town. We would be like the, what do you call that? The producer of the show. Uh But rather than do that, we would take all the money and we would be the real, we'd always be the producer, but we needed a venue for that. So in any case, we attempted to do that. And we formed a, a prop for-profit organization, which we had many of, called Oakland and the World Entertainment. Mm-hmm. So I took Oakland and the World and the World Enterprises as my name. And so it's my little secret because the colors are black and powder blue like the black fans party. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I put a little red star over Oakland and nobody gets it, but I'm happy because I just like, just go, yes, and this is a business enterprise. And then they go, is this a worker cooperative? Because that's very communist right, sounding, right? So I go, no, 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 this is a owner cooperative, cooperative ownership. So that flips it around. So we're doing a pretty good job. But the idea is to get people to invest in this idea that if you don't want these people to hit you in the head when you're trying to park your and steal your little purse or whatever else you think then you're going to have to decide where you want to put your money. Do you want to put it in 50000 a year, 60000 a year to keep somebody incarcerated for knocking you in the head? Or do you want to go ahead and put in less than that for somebody to develop his own or her own business and be thriving and successful or whatever that, you know what I mean? But at least be able to survive without being dependent and begging. And then from my end, from my side, is for Black people to begin to see ourselves not begging for a job, but creating our own, our own economy, Allah, T. Washington, a la Marcus Garvey, and even the Nation of Islam, we're always talking about for herself. When do we wanna decide that nobody's gonna give us anything? Nobody's coming to save us. So where are we gonna get money from? Now we are in this game, this hasn't changed. We wanna change this, but while we're in this period of change, we have to survive. So I call it what the Black Panther Party called all of our programs free food for children and all the other things that we had in terms of, for example, um, you know, our free clinics and so forth. We called those programs survival programs and it operated under the slogan survival pending revolution. This is a survival program. It's not going to make I'm hoping people would get rich. I told the food people, I said, if you want, you can develop a food truck chain. It all depends on how hard you want to work. But when you're working for yourself, then you won't be punching a clock. You won't be skipping things. You won't be acting like, well, I ain't gonna clean this because you know it depends on you because it's your money. And they really like this idea. I said, you've been hustling dope. You could stand out on that corner 18 hours. I know goddamn well that you could make a business work. Anybody can <laughs> stand out on the corner 18 hours and make $200 is somebody that needs to have a business. You're not good at stealing and you don't have, you have the business sense, but you're not in the business to make money. You're gonna get caught and go to prison. So that's the idea of opening the world enterprises.
2: Man, like that is so powerful. See, I knew we was going to get this from you. I knew we was going to get this from you. This is just us talking. So, I mean, I really, really love this. So throughout history, we have seen that Black women have been leading the struggle for justice and equality for hundreds of years. But we know that males often tend to get the glory either by through hijacking it or through some other misrepresentation of history, right? We know it happens. In fact, there's an old quote from Malcolm X and Keith and I were just talking to our another guest, Mr. Teresa Robinson about this same one. But from Malcolm X, he says that the most disrespected, unprotected and neglected person in America is the black woman. Can you talk about what it was like as a woman in the Black Panther movement and in America more broadly, during the civil rights era?
3: Yeah, well, I think the first thing we have to recognize is that I appreciate that Malcolm X would say that about you know the Black woman, and I think we are not loved. I think a lot of the time we have an obesity problem among, among Black women, and a lot of it has to do with not feeling loved. But we have to look at how did that happen, or what is that? Is that some failure on the part of Black men? What is the point of this? And then I can talk very briefly about that, but then. I talked about the Black Panther Party and the movement at the time. So we are living in a patriarchy. That means that the male is the head of the family because it's the foundation of all societies as the family. Now, if the family is mom, dad and children, which is what we see as the basic unit of the family out of which grows the society, then we know that the male is the dominant figure in a patriarchy. Somebody told me there's one society in the world that is a matriarchy. I'm not sure. Some Polynesian place, <laughs> somewhere that's so obscure we don't care. So, in the world as it exists, the model, the general Western model of the male as the dominator, is the structure. But of course, that puts a burden on the male because he has to go out and presumably provide and protect. That's the role of the male, right? Get the food, pay for the food, and defend the family, whatever it is. Um, so, that's the general model that we live in. So, I don't know how you could grow up in this society and have any other thought about a family. Nobody is thinking differently about a family. You don't think the mother's the head of the family or, or that there has to be a head of the family. That's the other part of it. Maybe there's a cooperative relationship, but we don't think that. Now, we as Black people, we have never even known whatever African cultures we had, we don't know anything about it. We might look at something, study something, yearn for something, try to change our names, you know, to Danike, Dandadai, whatever it is, You know, trying to make ourselves more cultural, give ourselves an identity. But from day one of arriving in this country from various parts of Africa, mostly through Ghana, through ships, and eventually the whole shipping industry and the insurance, and all these industries grew up just around the slave trade. You know, half these big insurance companies, when they want to tell me about insurance, I said, please, you know, where it came from. Well, like Brown University, one of the most prestigious universities in America, was founded with the money that the Brown family made off the incredible amount of money they made in the slave trade. From the ships in Connecticut or wherever they were, so it goes on and on and on. But our people were stripped not only of our families. It's not like the boy was brought with mom and dad. A little bit. No, the boy is taken from mom and so forth, and stripped of our names, our language, our culture, our history. Where is our flag? Will you know? Where is our dance? Our music? Everything? take hey, every single and then mostly stripped of our humanity, our ability to function as human beings, not allowed to be a partner with someone in a marriage, in a family. So when people say, oh, the breakdown of the Black family, I'm sorry, I think it was broken down for 250 years in America. I was a leader of the Black Panther Party, lest you forget, this was supposed to be the most militant, male-dominated organization in America, and yet I was the chairman. And I wasn't (laughs) the only woman leader. Kathleen Cleaver was a leader, Erica Huggins, Audria Jones, we had a number of sisters, that were in leadership position. Now, that wasn't true of SCLC, Dr. King's organization. It wasn't true of the NAACP, which has a very bad record. It wasn't true of the Urban League. It wasn't true of CORE. It wasn't true of SNCC. But the Black Panther Party had women in leadership. Now, some people like to say, well, that's because the men got killed. No, no, no. There were women leaders. When I joined the Black Panther Party, Erica Huggins was my captain. And that's what we called her. We didn't call her Captainette. We called her (laughs) Captain. You follow my point? Yep. So my point is, yes, the men were chauvinists. Yes, we all accepted. Women, many women came to the party thinking we were supposed to cook. I wasn't one of them because I can't cook, and I wasn't going to cook. But when we had the breakfast programs, for example, you didn't get out of cooking breakfast because you were a man. Matter of fact, I would say if you looked at a lot of the photographs we took, you'll see a lot of brothers. And I'm talking about hard for street brothers serving breakfast to the little children. You'll see that. We did not have a gender role in the Black Panther Party. Now, there were some men in the party and some had significant positions, but there were some men in the party who thought that they brought their old ways, as we all did, into the party, but we tried to revolutionize our ways. Now, I don't think that Black men and Black women ought to be put in a position where we want to have competition on who did more, because I think we need each other too much. And if we really believe in the fundamental issues involved in what we call the revolution, we quote Che Guevara saying a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. I'm not going to allow you to make my brother my enemy. I'm not going to allow anyone to do that. I'm not going to allow white bourgeois feminist thinking to invade our history. Are there men that should have been corrected? Are there men who took credit for stuff they didn't do? But when we look at Dr. King, listen, Corretta Scott King, was a, a radical long before Dr. King. She was out there when she was at the, I forgotten now, Sunday, the name of the school in the Midwest, sort of, I wish I could remember it. But anyway, she was her own person, but she threw down with Martin. Mm-hmm. And Martin threw down with her because really I think he picked up a lot of radical ideas from her. But after Martin was killed, what did she do? She went and she led the first walk or march to Washington for the Poor People's Campaign. I'm telling you, that was like the month of May. He was killed in April. That's what a bad sister she is. Same thing with Betty Shabazz. When Malcolm was killed, she did the Hajj pregnant with twins. hmm Everybody in the Black Panther Party had to do whatever jobs you were assigned, and almost all of us were assigned almost everything, depending on the day. But all of us had to be trained. We all of us had to go to political education classes. That was like fundamental, and you had to get weapons training. So when you got a bunch of women that are strapped, that's another reason why there's another situation where you, oh, you think you're gonna be bad. You know, oh, really? It's gonna be like that? I don't think so. I'm strapped too, remember? That's <laughs> 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 the truth. All of our all of us had to take weapons training. I I remember being out in the Mojave Desert there in uh, Southern California, being trained on big weapons. I mean, I remember it was something called an elephant gun. And it had a uh a rebound, you know, recoil that was so strong you'd like throw you up against a tree if you, would, if you had one to stand behind, but it was really tough to shoot. I remember being trained on a crossbow. How about that? You ever shot a crossbow? No. Hard to tell. Because it's got so much pressure on it. And you only get one shot, right? <laughs> so, then like you got rapid fire, so you got, you know, you had to put your foot up and load that crossbow, that was a rough one. So we learned. We all knew how to, to shoot.
2: Hey, well, look, Miss Elaine, I mean, you have been putting in that work for so long and and doing so much to build community and to strengthen our village, right? And we just so appreciate you for it. But as we get close to wrapping up, I want to get your opinion on one final topic, right? Lately, we've been exploring the concept of white fragility on our podcast, What do you think about this topic around white fragility?
3: I don't even know what that means, fragility. (laughs) I mean, I know what fragility, they're fragile or their weaknesses. What do you mean? Can I ask that? You got
2: it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Us tapering what we say or how we say it or what we do around them because they are fragile about it. They don't want to really focus on the histrionics of their behavior and their actions.
3: Right. I understand what you mean. Well, you know, really, I don't care anything about what white people think. The only reason I care about anybody is because you have something that I want, or you can do something to hurt me. So it's like, do I care what I say? You know, you know, black parents are, you know, Steve Harvey said that the difference between black people and white people is that white parents are are embarrassed by their children and black children embarrassed by their parents, you know, because you know how a black mother would say, oh, I know you don't think that you're going to act out in this store, because I'll be <laughs> innocent, right? I don't have, i <laughs> You know how you see the biggest brother in the world, and his little mother can come up to him and shut him down in one minute, right? Yeah. Didn't I tell you not, oh. Yes, ma'am. You know, everybody gets it. <laughs> So that's the difference. Like, Cause a parent will embarrass your ass in the street. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay? So don't, and we'll walk up in the classroom and snatch you stuff like that, that you're like, why? You know, like, you know, white people, their children, slap them around, they thought to come into the classroom. So I say that to say that I understand the concept of being afraid that white people will be offended but the only reason we'd be afraid of anything is that a consequence will be delivered. It's like, why do police do what they do? Because they're not afraid of us. There ain't no consequence coming. They shoot, uh, kill George Floyd. Well, what are they going to do? Tear up a couple streets. streets. How long is that going to last? A couple of weeks? Some T-shirts, a hat, hashtags, whatever. That's it. The rest of that, you don't even remember what happened to Breonna Taylor. They haven't even charged with popping her tapes. And they came in, they're blazing, right? So... They know there's no consequence for their behavior, so they do whatever the hell they feel like doing. Mm -hmm. So the only people I'm concerned with is when I have to worry about a consequence. And that's what we have to do. Now, is this person or are these people giving you something? Are they taking something? Because they've already taken everything from us. We know that. We have no opportunity in this world. This is their world, it's not our world. We don't own anything. And I always point this out carefully because these are the concrete conditions. We can't talk about fantasy conditions, the concrete conditions. When we look at the Fortune 500 companies, not just the names, but the things that they produce or manufacture or do, all the tech companies, we don't own no tech companies. We got Robert F. Smith. And after that, it starts getting hairy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not like we're not smart. But, you know, I look at a company like Pixar. I, want, I really want to start that as my tech company. I was going to do something else, but I think it's an easy one. We can get brothers coming out of the joint, since They draw. They can draw. And we can make our own animated films that concern this kind of thing, whatever. All you gotta do is learn computer, a little bit of computer science and come up with how to do it. That's all Pixar's doing. And they making a lot of money. They're based here in the Bay Area, in, in Emeryville. So using that as an example, we don't have Pixar. We don't even, much less Zuckerberg's company, who's just eating up the world. I mean, you got people in Africa don't have running water and got a phone with a Facebook on it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Really? Uh, seriously, and you well know that, so forth. So we're not in control of any of the systems and products and things. When we go into a target and target itself, we don't own. We go into target, you can't even find a product that's black produced with the exception maybe some soap, like, you know, they have a little ethnic section (laughs) for (laughs) (laughs) beer products, and even that. Do you know that at one point, Jack Kent, remember him, the Republican, Jack Kent was the majority shareholder of black hair straightener. What was that hair straightener called? Not called black It was a hair straightener. Very famous. I would remember it. I just can't remember right now. But it was a chemical hair straightener, that home hair straightener, which many people burned out all their hair with. But anyway, they were losing sales in America because people could go to the hairdresser by then. And they had, the biggest market was in Africa. Jack Kemp owned, oh, dark and lovely, Dark and Lovely. Remember Dark and Lovely products? Yeah, yes. Might still be around. I don't know. Dark and Lovely was selling in Africa and Jack Kemp was a majority share. Now let's just think about that one for a minute. So my point is, (laughs) or like, what's his name that was the head of Exxon that became the secretary of state, Tim Rex Tillerson. Right. Rex Tillerson, he said, I don't care about losing this little job. I'm going back to Exxon where I'm really going to make some money. And he at one point said he had more oil fields in Nigeria than he did in almost all of America for Exxon. Exxon. Now, so even around the world, in the diaspora, as it were, but we don't own anything or control anything. And so the question is, what is it that we want from white people at this point? Do we just want a job? Now, if you want a job and they're in charge, you will have to come into the job and act the way they want you to act. We all know how to code switch. Everybody Black knows how to code switch. You've got to in order to live in America. And if you don't, that's why your name is Dante and you're going to the joint because you didn't get the code switching part memo. You know, you got to put your suit and tie on or your, your little shoes, you know, like we fought for the right to like wear a fro. So that's what you're talking about. So it's not their quote fragility as much as that they don't want to deal with us and our history. I've had white people tell me that. It's not my fault. I understand, but it's not my fault. And I say, it's not my fault. But guess what? You're benefiting from slavery still, and I'm still paying the price. See, so somewhere we got to make a change. I'm not asking you to give up any money because you don't have any money. Now, if I'm talking to a poor white person, I don't even have anything to say to your ass, nothing. Do we want to have a fight with everybody every day? So there's the daily life of our personal life, and then there's our group and collective life. On a day-to-day basis, even though I live in an apartment building and I almost never leave, nobody's in this apartment with me, and nobody's coming in here, believe me. So believe me, it's been rough too. But anyway, if I get on the elevator, I would say this building, and it's a pretty big, it's 25 stories. I live on 21st floor. I would say that this building is a minimum one-third black, maybe more, but it's a significant number of blacks in this building, significant number of whites in this building. And then there's, you know, other, whatever other might be. But it's about one-third, one-third, and one-third like that. It's not like I'm the only Black or Black people, don't. although there are no Black people working here. I make note. I don't care because it's not my fight. So it's not a fight I want to be involved in. So I'm not going to go and have an argument about why aren't there more Black people working here. You know, it's mostly Mexicans because they can pay them nothing and expect more and all that. Well, I got on the elevator one day to go down to the laundry room. I come back up. And I get on the elevator, and on the fourteenth floor, a white guy, big white, big white guy, like six five, kind of big, big white, not fat, but like a football player, gets on. I said, "Oh no, no, there's two of us on here. The elevator elevator's coronavirus time. No, you can't get on." Now everybody else just backs up. I'm getting on. I don't care. I don't want to hear what you got to say. Oh, you will talk. I said, "Well, then let me out. Let me out, please. I'm not trying to fight anybody. Certainly, I can't win, but I don't even want you to touch me. I don't want to touch you." So I said, let me, oh, oh, he's not moving. His wife is on the other side on the floor saying, honey, get off and all this. So I finally said, move aside. Just move aside. He goes, why don't you go back to where you came from? Now, that's the kind of shit you have to debate every damn day. Do I want to go along with this? Do I want to fight? Or do I want to go up there and get my damn pistol and blow his ass? I know you live on the 14th floor, and I ain't but eight eight apartments per floor. So I ain't got far to look. <laughs> <laughs> I will describe your ass and find you. Now, this is how crazy I am waiting on the 14th floor for the elevator to come again. I'm sitting there thinking about how to kill this man. Now, this is what happens to black people every day. Yeah. Some yeah. little incident and other people say, oh, I don't think he really meant what you think. What do you mean you don't think he meant? I don't even care what you think. You don't interpret black things to me. I had a white woman tell me in a Whole Foods store, I'm standing to get some cheese. I gotta be in her. I got to meet in my house. I want to grab this cheese, grab some grapes, a bottle of wine and move on, right? That's all I want to do. So I'm standing there to pick out some brie. That's all. Now remember this is super middle-class bullshit, right? I'm picking out brie. This wife (laughs) comes to me and says, could you please move? And this is tough to take your breath away. You're like, did you ask me? Like, am I standing here buying something? So we got into a thing and I told her, look, this is the clean version. I said, take your ass away from me right now. Don't look, don't say anything else. Don't look at me, just walk away. She comes back with the manager. And the manager's like, man, I, I, she said, I said, I, now I'm not moving. I would have been gone because I was in a hurry. Now I'm not going I'm posted up now. You know, <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't going nowhere. Oh no, <laughs> I'm buying all the cheese. I don't know what you I want it, it'll take me an hour to pick one. So, so now she comes back to the manager. I said, when I'm finished, I will move. And not before. Manager says, ma'am, to the other one, to the white girl, just let it go. She said, oh, I can't believe you're doing this. And she goes and gets a security guard who got a gun. I said, oh, this is not going to be one of those incidents. Let me start filming. Hold up. I tell, I don't know how to, I never know how to hit the video part. But I act <laughs> like I'm finished. And I hope a phone call or something doesn't come in. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, go ahead. What did I have to say, white boy? You going to pull your gun on me over some cheese? Okay. Film at 11. So he's like, "Man, I was just trying to say, I said, look, you back up, you have nothing to do with this. Tell that bitch to leave, go to your car. I am not moving now until she's away from me, that's it. But look at the amount of time and energy, the anger, the intensity that I had to endure over buying some cheese for some a meeting that I'm having about, you know, housing and open or something. And that is a daily thing that we have to wrestle with. And I don't think other people understand that, but I don't even go anywhere. Now, in the last year, where do I go? And yet, there'll be this one exchange.
2: Wow, wow, wow. Secrets family. (laughs) What an incredible opportunity to hear from a legend, an outright legend in in the social activism game.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And in the last episode, we spent some time speaking about the Black Panther Party's 10-point program. But let's just spend a few minutes speaking of how two groups of people can see the same events differently based on their backgrounds, their motives, their experience, right? When we look back in 1967, Black Panther Party goes to the California State Capitol, strapped. (laughs) <laughs> right because they were really fighting to stop police brutality right and so black panther party they protected their neighborhoods they had these armed patrols to try and root out abusive officers and despite i thought we had the second amendment right right we did <laughs> to, we absolutely to, to carry did carry firearms in public the california state legislature said put forward this act called the Munford act to try and suppress the Black Party from being able to stand up for their rights, so when the Black Panther Party showed up at the Capitol to kind of defend their freedoms and their right to carry arms,
2: the system went crazy. I mean, you got all these black people with guns
1: went though. crazy, you right? Got all these people. So all they were just trying to do is go and make a message that we have the right to bear arms, and we
2: have a right to peacefully stand up for ourselves. But not everybody saw it that way. Yeah. And again, this was within realms of the law. Of the law. They did not break a law, right? But if we want to look at it from a different point of view, at that point in time, we could say, well, look, there were 30 armed militants that stormed into the state capitol with the blatant intent to intimidate legislators mid-session the officials have a responsibility to their constituents to do all they can to protect their safety and maintain social order. Now, I'm, I'm talking about, as you said, Keith, 1967. 1967, I'm not talking about 2021. Right. You know, when we now know this to be a recent event and we, we called it the oh, sure. insurrection, yes, <laughs> you know, we're talking about when the Black Panthers did this in. You know, again, we're talking about the governor, Ronald Reagan, yeah. you know, at the time he had no choice, no choice, he had no choice, but to sign the Mulford act into law and disarm the militant black Panthers, given their repeated standoffs with police officers who were just trying to do their job. Mm, mm, so mm. two different point of view, two different point of view, same experience, right? <laughs> exactly.
1: Oh, Hey, I thought we all had second amendment rights, but maybe I'm mistaken. <laughs> It continues because even during that whole period for the next couple years, you had a number of Black Panther members, including Huey Newton, make headlines for their involvement in violent confrontations and shootout with police. And though a white police officer was killed in one of those incidents, Huey Newton ends up as a political prisoner, a victim of a biased court system, right? The media and the FBI portray the Black Panthers as murderous, violent. Despite the police that were the ones who were gunning down everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Including an unarmed teen, the Panther treasurer, Bobby Hutton, who was shot eight times when he refused to raise his arms and surrender, right? Mm-hmm. So here we go again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, no. Tons I mean, of people
2: being shot, killed, <laughs> been portrayed as murderous, violent. So you have Bobby Hutton who's surrendering. Right. It gets get get shot eight times. Now, again, we're talking about an incident that happened in the 60s and and almost like like towards the end of the 60s. Right. So, again, we have heard this story before. Okay, like we have countless, you know, situations. But let me just give you a different point of view. So the headlines at that point where public officers and elected officials, they refer to, the, to that same incident or that period of time where civilian violence will be met with a police response as this is what the police are employed to do, <laughs> okay? <Black laughs> While the Black Panther, Black Panther members constantly blame law enforcement for repressive behavior in U.S. courts for discrimination, they should look Inward to see who was really responsible for their destructive behavior and negative reputation. Violent conflicts within the Black Panther Party are to blame for many members' deaths, not excessive force by the police. So there are numerous members found beaten, tortured, or murdered at the hands of each other. That's so it's bl- not police.
1: That's black on black crime. <laughs>
2: exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Come exactly.
1: on now. Again, on. <laughs> two
2: different points of views. To the same act. To the same stuff that's going on, They see it differently.
1: See it differently. It's like, even now, hands up, don't shoot. Mm -hmm. But you're still getting blasted in the back or wherever it is. And we talked about the 10-point program that the Black Panthers had, right? And in particular, this free breakfast for children program. Black Panther Party creates this much-needed social program feeding Oakland community kids free breakfast in school cafeterias. This program fills a need that the federal government had long ignored by providing hundreds and eventually up to 30,000 meals to 30,000 kids nationwide. Which, for most people, that was their only source of food for the day. Yep. Right? The Black Panther Party members and volunteers, you know, went to local supermarkets for donations. They consulted with nutritionists. You know, they got lots of
2: people involved to prepare and serve this breakfast all for free. And again, research had taken place back then where it still takes place today, but we know that a kid who's not hungry has the ability to learn and retain information much better than one. Who's Absolutely.
1: Hungry. And it leads to better educational outcomes, which then leads to better careers, which then leads to generational wealth.
2: What part of that is, is crazy. Controversial. Like what part of that is like, I want to eat before I go to school. Right. You know, I It's bad. Eat. It's bad. So, but again, last, last point I'll give for you then is another part of this story, you know, in terms of how it's perceived and how it's spun is, While the party's breakfast program sounds positive, it is merely a ruse to recruit vulnerable children and indoctrinate them with the Black Panther philosophy, (laughs) okay? (laughs) While the program does actually feed the children breakfast, its true intent is to fill their minds with messages of Black Power White's subjugation of African-Americans in an attempt to fuel revolution against white law enforcement. Now, again, even J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI recognized this program for what it was. They called it a communist inspired infiltration into American society aimed at turning citizens against its government. All that for a damn piece of toast. Breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to eat. (laughs) We try to eat. (laughs) And we wonder why we can't get ahead. Exactly. It's all that somebody looks at it. And again, we're saying they're making you feel like you're crazy. Right. But you're not crazy, people. You're not crazy. This is really true. But
1: going through these comparisons, I know we're making a little light of it here at the end, but this stuff is real. And going through these comparisons kind of reminded me of that old phrase, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm Because if you look at those just three examples in and of themselves. You can see comparisons to those today. Absolutely. In in every sense of the word. So we just got to keep fighting for change if we want to make things better because we just
2: got to do it. Don't (laughs) fall for the okie doke. Don't fall for the okie doke. At the end of the day, I mean, look, Secrets Family... If you like the content that we have been bringing to you, I mean, we've had Teresa Robinson. We've had Dorit. You know, we have part, two, part you know, two of a two-hour conversation that we had with our sister Elaine Brown. Yeah. And we have Amber Cabral coming up, too. That's right. We got more. But if you like this content, the best way you can help your brothers out is just go on to Apple Podcasts, like us. And write a review. Please write those <laughs> okay, reviews. Write a review. Join us on uh, LinkedIn. Join our group. You know, yep. on LinkedIn as well. Buy some gear and some other merchandise, right? I mean, just keep sporting it, keep okay? Sporting it. Try our coaching services. I mean, we are getting a ton of people who are um, opting in, you know, for the coaching Absolutely. services. Absolutely. That's how Ricky and I spend our weekends. when We're not <laughs> recording. We're just
1: coaching.
2: Right? Helping people get their bread, man. Helping people advocate for themselves. And finally, become a Secrets patron on Patreon. We're releasing exclusive access to our full interviews with guests, Early releases of some of our podcast episodes and live interactions with both Keith and I and our uh, special guests. I mean, there's some funny stuff, you know, on yeah, there. We have a good time. Yeah, especially uh, Mister Lane telling me uh, not to be ashy you know, right. on the camera, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> she did. we talking about ashy elbows and dirty draws. Exactly. Oh, dirty my goodness. Dirty draws. But I'll tell you what, Missy Lane brought some heat. And, I mean, it was just amazing experience. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, I need to go listen to some Chuck D
2: (laughs) (laughs) as I refill
1: this cocktail, right? (laughs) So, thank you all for joining us on Seekers. and, And remember, when we share, you transform. And until next time, talk to you. Take care.
0: Thank you all for listening today. Hopefully you gained a secret or two that can be applied as your journey continues. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, and donate via Patreon. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Don't forget to tune in next time for more Hot Fire. Until then, cheers.